Well, once again, good morning. We, um, this Pentecost, as is appropriate, will be talking this morning about the Holy Spirit, but I would like to, to do it perhaps maybe differently than you're used to, maybe not, um, but I would like to focus less on what the Holy Spirit does, okay? And so when you think about what the Holy Spirit does, there, there's lots of things that we often think about, you know, sustaining the faithful, um, enabling them to follow Jesus Christ. Um, we think of the um, just the, the sort of day-in and day-out power of God in our lives, so the not-so-miraculous, and we think sometimes of the miraculous, perhaps speaking in tongues, as we saw in our reading this morning, or healings, um, or the you know, amazing reconciliations, the, the, the miraculous works of God, the not-so-miraculous works of God, the Holy Spirit um, is behind them all, and that's what He does. But I want to focus less on the what this morning and more on the why. Why does he do it, okay? Not what he does, but why does he do it? Because I think sometimes um, we think he does these things to make us happy or make us feel good. Um, And and sometimes they do make us happy, and yes, they do make us feel good. But that's not why. That's a very me-centered reason about why the Holy Spirit works. And I want us to look at the God-centered reason of why the Holy Spirit works. So to do that, I think we're going to have to go all the way back to Genesis, Um, Bear with me. We've only got a, we've got a couple hours, so we'll be good. Um, just kidding. Really briefly, though, we we got to know, we got to see sort of the whole scope of God's plan. And so, um, if you remember quickly, Genesis, God creates heaven and the earth. He creates man and woman in His image. Everything is what very good. He makes this in His image, and, and things are fine. And Adam and Eve are walking with God in the cool of the garden. They disobey him, they sin, and they rebel against God, and the consequences of that sin is they are separated from God, they are removed from his presence, they are removed from the garden, and then we see over the next seven chapters or so, eight chapters of Genesis, all the way up to Genesis 12, how bad the sin actually is and how deep it gets. And we're going to talk about um, one of the sort of climaxes of that, uh, Genesis chapter 11, in in a few minutes. Um, Genesis chapter 12, God calls a man Abraham, and he says, Abraham, through you I will make a great nation to be um, a blessing to all peoples. And so Abraham has children, and they have children, and they have children, and eventually we have the nation of Israel, okay, hundreds of thousands of people, all tracing their lineage to Abraham, and they're in slavery at this point in Egypt, and they're somehow supposed to be the people of God, but that's really hard to do when the Egyptians are whipping you and beating you and making you build pyramids all day long. And so they're in slavery in Egypt, and God says, okay, it's time to rescue my people. He sends Moses, right? And he rescues them from slavery in Egypt, delivers them through the Red Sea into the Sinai Peninsula. There he calls them together, we're going to talk about this in a second too, and says to them, you are my people, I am your God, you will be a light to all nations, and here are my commandments, my laws to show you what it looks like to be the people of God. So you, Israel... I'm calling you to be my people, to be special, to be different. And by doing that, the whole world will see how glorious and gracious and loving I am. So God gives Israel the law. He delivers them after some wandering in the wilderness. He eventually delivers them into the promised land. God resides there among his people in the temple, in the promised land. And they're all set to be the people God has called them to be. And they're really bad at it. They're terrible. 
They, they, they're looking away from God. They're worshiping other gods. They're not doing what God has called them to do. They're not fulfilling the law that God has given them. They have this outline of what it looks like to be the people of God, and yet constantly, time and time again, they do the exact opposite. It's the consequence of sin in this world, consequence of our separation from God. And so we see it in Israel. You see it in your life today. And Jesus saw it when he came to finally redeem his people. So Jesus comes to redeem Israel. Um, he's coming, they don't really exactly know how he's doing it, but he's coming to deliver them from sin. And so not simply to make them into the nation they wanted to be, but to get to the root of the problem, which was the sin in their hearts and in their lives. And to do that, he dies on the cross. He says, your sin has a penalty. That penalty is death. I'm taking that penalty on my shoulders by being crucified. But God looks at the crucified Jesus and sees the perfect and obedient child, the divine yet human Jesus Christ, and he raises him from the dead. We celebrate that at Easter. And then the disciples witness this risen Jesus for 40 days, and finally on that 40th day he takes them outside of Jerusalem, and he says to them something quite amazing. He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. So they don't have the power yet. But they, he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And with that, he ascends into heaven. He, we don't even have words to describe what happens, but, but the writer of Luke, he, he does his best, and he says, Jesus ascended into the clouds. He ascended into the cloud of God's glory, representing the glory of God, Jesus ascending into heaven, and the disciples are left wondering what is next, and they go back to Jerusalem praising and worshiping Jesus and waiting. Praising and worshiping and waiting. And that's where our story in Acts picks up this morning. The disciples gathered together in the upper room, waiting. And we see now Luke is going to tell us, Luke's the author of Acts, he's going to tell us why the Holy Spirit came by recounting the story of Pentecost, by recounting the story of the birth of the church. We're going to dive into this story, into this narrative, and figure out, we'll see what the Holy Spirit does for sure, but we'll also figure out why he came. What is his role in this grand plan of salvation, the one that says that one day Jesus Christ will return to this earth, will bring God's kingdom in his fullness on the earth? That's coming. That's not here yet. Jesus died and was raised from the dead. That happened, but right now... We have the Holy Spirit. Why is he with us right now? And Luke gives us the answer to that question. And so, the first thing we see to support this, uh, to, to, to see what God is doing, oh, and the, what God is doing, let me tell you my sort of thesis, is when God gives the Holy Spirit, what he is doing in this, this day of Pentecost is he's giving birth to the church. We talked about this briefly at the beginning of the service. This is your birthday, church. Happy birthday. God gives birth to the church on Pentecost. And then the people of God, the new people of God, the body of Christ is equipped by the Holy Spirit to fulfill the mission that was given to Israel. Do you see that? The church is the new people of God, and yet they have the same mission to be a light to the nations. And the Holy Spirit gives us the power to do that. Now let's take a look at this. The first thing we see and that we have to notice about this chapter in Acts 
is what is happening. It's Pentecost. And we often read that and we think, oh, well, it says, you know, verse 2-1, when the day of Pentecost arrived. And we're thinking, oh, when the day the Holy Spirit came. Um, but Luke doesn't know to call the coming of the Holy Spirit Pentecost. That's, he doesn't have to figure that out yet. He's talking about something else, a different Pentecost. There was a Pentecost before there was the Pentecost that we know about. This was a Jewish festival. So, what's happening on this Jewish festival? Well, the crowds, the streets are packed with people. They are everywhere making this pilgrimage to Jerusalem, except for those disciples. Who knows what they're thinking? Are they scared? Probably. Are they expectant? Certainly. But they don't, they're not in the streets. They know that, that there's something different about them. And so they're waiting and waiting. And then suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So they're sitting in this room on this festival day of Pentecost, and the Holy Spirit blows in. I imagine him knocking the windows and the doors open. Luke knows this from heaven. A sound from heaven, like a mighty rushing wind, came upon these disciples. Tongues of fire anointed on their heads. They're speaking languages that they don't know. It is a powerful and unmistakable moment. And it happened on Pentecost. Why? Well, the Jewish festival of Pentecost was celebrating the day that Moses, the God through Moses, gave the nation of Israel their law. Celebrating that that great day at Mount Sinai when Moses came down with the Ten Commandments and 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 gave the the law to Israel and, and you know when you're thinking about this think about um, Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy these these books that are um, hard to read but actually quite helpful sometimes that talk about the law of God the details of how to be the people of God. And so Pentecost is celebrating it, that great day when they um, were finally sort of ratified as the people of God. Think about the day that, that our representatives signed the Constitution and we became the United States of America. It's that sort of day that they are celebrating. Except they couldn't obey this law, remember? It was a burden to them. They, they couldn't fulfill it. They had all these things that they were supposed to do, the people of God, but, but in their sinfulness, they could not complete them. They could not achieve them. They could not be what God had called them to be. And so we read in other places in the Old Testament, God is lamenting the sinfulness of his people, but there's always a promise attached to that. And he says, one day, one day, by the power of my spirit, I will write this law on your hearts. It will no longer be written on tablets of stone, but be written on the flesh of your heart that you are my people and I am your God. And friends, that day has come. On this day of Pentecost, celebrating the, the, God's giving of the old covenant, the Holy Spirit blasts into this room full of disciples and he writes the law of God on their hearts. 
And he sends them out on the streets proclaiming the glory of God and the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ so that others who believe may have this law written where? On their hearts. So that the people of God may be equipped to finally fulfill the mission given to them to be a light to the nations. The challenge... um, with this is we're in this sort of in-between times because there is, um, you know, we have this sort of freedom in the Spirit, and yet there are things that God calls us to do, and we don't always want to do them, do we? You know, you know this, this age-old problem that you know what you're supposed to do. You know what you should be doing. You know what God wants you to do. You know what your husband, your wife, or your children want you to do. You know what your boss wants you to do. In fact, they probably have told you what to do. And yet, either you don't do it, or you don't want to do it, or something about them telling you to do it makes you do the complete opposite thing. That's how the law works without the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And so we're in this sort of in-between time where God has written it on our hearts to proclaim the glory of God to the nations, to be a light to the world, and yet we're still sort of falling short. In fact, even lamenting over our own inability to do this. And this should be perfectly Expected, the great reformer Martin Luther says this about the Holy Spirit. The two must always be mingled in our feelings. The Holy Spirit and our sin and imperfection. The Holy Spirit is given to none except those who are in sorrow and fear. And in them it produces good fruit. The two must be always mingled. The Holy Spirit... And our sin and imperfection. Why is that? God has not perfected you yet. You haven't reached glory. As long as you're walking on this side of heaven, you're not going to get there. And so when the Holy Spirit is in your life, when the law of God is written in your heart, it is necessarily in conflict with the same sin that is in your heart. They are there at the same time. And so when you feel that tension, when you feel that temptation, when you feel that resistance... That is because you have the Holy Spirit in you. If you're walking along and you're thinking, man, I'm doing pretty good at this Christian thing, at following Jesus. I'm really getting somewhere. I'm getting pretty excellent at it. I would challenge you that the Holy Spirit is not speaking very loudly into your heart. Or He is and you're not listening to Him. But if you're lamenting your sin, if you're seeking God's help and guidance, if you're realizing how deep you actually are in the midst of it, how far away from God you actually are, then praise the Lord because the Holy Spirit has spoken to you. And He's going to work on your heart and He's going to chisel off these things that are, that are causing us to be separated from God. By all means, you will grow in your faith the more you seek God, but, but part of growing in your faith is realizing just how bad you actually are. Another quote, C.S. Lewis. 9 o'clock didn't get this quote, so congratulations. C.S. Lewis says this, I've been trying to make the reader believe that we actually are, at present, creatures whose character must be a horror to God, as it is when we really see it a horror to ourselves. This I believe to be a fact. Listen to this. The holier a man is, the more fully he is aware of his sin. And so that's one of the things with the Holy Spirit. He, he's written himself onto our hearts. 
But in doing so, we, we, we realize his power and at the same time realize how far from God we actually are. Second thing we see in this passage, the Holy Spirit overcomes the power of sin. So that sinfulness in our heart can be overcome by the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's read on. Um, there were dwelling in Jerusalem devout Jews um, from every nation under heaven. And at the sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we, each of us, hear in our own native language? And then there's a bunch of names that are really hard to pronounce that shows the diversity of the people who were there. And they were amazed and perplexed, saying to one, or, one another, What does this mean? And so it would be like me speaking in a language I don't know, okay, Russian, we'll just say Russian, and you hearing it in Spanish or German or Kiswahili or Japanese or Chinese. So, so it would be like them speaking a language they don't know and everybody in the room hearing it in their own native language. An amazing thing. They said, what does this mean? What does this mean? Remember what we're focusing on, the Holy Spirit overcoming the power of sin. Now, this story might remind you of another story in the Bible that talks about languages and different languages. Um, you've got to go way back to Genesis chapter 10, the story of the Tower of Babel. Do you remember those folks? They were coming together. They all spoke the same language. And they said, you know what we need to do? We need to build a tower. We're going to build a tower that reaches all the way to God. Why are we going to do this? To make a name for ourselves. That's the quote in the Bible. These people, way back in Genesis chapter 10, all spoke the same language. And they said, we're going to make a name for ourselves. And we're going to do that by building block by block a tower that will reach all the way into the heavens. And we'll let God see us. And he will see how great we are. And we will finally have a name for ourselves. And so they start building this tower. God peeks down at them. I imagine him giving a, a, a good chuckle and sort of a, what are they getting into now? And he comes down to check it out, and he says, wow, this could be pretty dangerous. You know, they speak the same language. Language, they're pretty well coordinating. They're building this tower, and, and their hearts are full of sin, right? Full of sin. I'm going to make a name for myself. Self-centeredness, self-aggrandizing. They want to make a name for themselves, not, mind you, a name for God. And so that sin has a consequence, and the consequence in this particular Bible story is that God scatters their language. They, they no longer speak the same language. They seek, speak a multitude of languages, and they can't understand one another, and they don't know what they're saying, and so they can't build a tower, and so the Tower of Babel lies uncompleted, and the people are scattered across the face of the earth. Why? Because they can't speak the same language, because God has punished them in their selfishness and in their sinfulness. Now, that's Genesis 11, okay? The very next chapter is Genesis what? 12, very good. In Genesis 12, God begins his plan again, right? He says, I'm going to call a people to be my people. 
to be a light to the nations. And so he begins with Abraham, right? And he calls him in Genesis chapter 12, and he says, Abraham, you'll be a blessing to all the nations of the world. And so in response to the sinfulness of man and the the scattering of languages, God begins the calling of his people with Abraham. And he begins this plan of salvation culminated in Jesus Christ and now inherited by us, the church, to be a blessing to all nations. And so we come to Pentecost, okay, Bear with me, this is a long train of thought, but you can do it. We come to Pentecost, and God is doing what? He's reconstituting his people. He's giving birth to the church. He is writing their law on their hearts. He is making a new Israel, a new people of God. And the first thing that happens is all of a sudden, the chaos of all these different languages is brought to complete order, and they can understand and they can hear the people of God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, are overcoming the sinfulness of man by proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. And people can understand. By the power of the Holy Spirit, God is overcoming that root of sin. And we see it played out in this this mixing and mingling of languages, reversing what had happened way back at the Tower of Babel. It's an amazing thing. And then when we really think of that and dwell on that and we say, God's doing that in my own life. He's doing that in my heart. He is overcoming my own consequences of sin right here and right now in my own heart. And so your pride, friends, your selfishness, your greed, your lust, these things have torn your heart to pieces, have they not? They've torn your family to pieces. Maybe it's your um, self-aggrandizement. How many of you in here are trying to make a name for yourself? Maybe you've done a pretty good job. Maybe you've padded your bank account. Maybe you've got a fabulous career. How many bridges did you burn to get there? How alone are you right now? And maybe you've got something else going on in your life, and you you know it. You don't need me to sit here and tell you about your sin and tell you the consequences that it has wreaked on your life. You know it. You know what has happened because of the decisions you've made. But what you might not know is that you can be redeemed. That the Holy Spirit can work in your heart and in your lives and in your relationships and can bring you back and can restore you. And he'll do that. He'll point you to Jesus Christ. He'll bring you to the foot of the cross and you beg for mercy and you beg for forgiveness. And the Holy Spirit working in your life will make all things new and he's going to start it right now. He reverses, he overcomes the power of sin in our lives. That's what the Holy Spirit does, and that's, that's why God has sent him. The final why God has sent him is to give the world a preview of the heaven on earth that is to come. So we get to um, verse 14, and Peter Stands up, and some of the crowd are thinking, well, certainly these men are drunk. And Peter says, no, 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 they're not drunk. It's only 9 o'clock in the morning. Then he quotes from the prophet Joel. And he's effectively saying, you know, what you're seeing, what is happening is the great promises of God are coming to fulfillment. The day of the Lord is now. And Peter quotes this, this from Joel. He says, in the last days, these are the last days, it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. 
Your sons and daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone, everyone, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Peter is saying that day That great and glorious day is right now. That the kingdom of God is right now. Jesus' message was not the kingdom of God is coming. The message was Jesus that Jesus said is the kingdom of God is in your midst. And then we look at this world and we say, well, are you sure about that, Jesus? There's a lot of suffering. There's a lot of evil. There's a lot of pain. There's a lot of people hurting each other. I don't really think the kingdom of God is quite here, but Peter's saying, he's saying it's here now. And so, again, there's that tension, just like there's the tension on our hearts between our sinfulness and the Spirit of God. There's a tension in this world between the kingdom being here and the kingdom not being here just yet. And and our call, friends, as the church, as the body of Christ, as to people with the Holy Spirit, God's law written on our hearts as people whose sin is being redeemed and overcome. It is our calling then to live as citizens of the kingdom of God that is here but not fully here yet. And when we do that, and when we live as the body of Christ, and when I say live as the body of Christ, the the bearings for that are, are seen on the cross as we live as a people who is forgiven and who forgives abundantly and offers grace abundantly. When we do that, the world will look at us and see a different kingdom. They'll say, you're different. You're, you're kind of strange, but there's something about you that we love. And that thing that we love is Jesus Christ. And so the Holy Spirit enables us as the church to show the world what heaven looks like, what the kingdom of God really looks like. St. Paul says that the Holy Spirit is um, a guarantee of our inheritance. Perhaps you might consider it like an engagement ring. An engagement ring is a sign of something bigger and greater that is to come. The Holy Spirit is a sign of God's presence in the midst of his people that one day will be full and perfect and complete when the ascended Jesus reigns on this earth. And we have a chance to show that to the world. And so the Anglican theologian N.T. Wright says this, The Holy Spirit is given to enable God's people to actually be God's people so that we can be, in some sense, not fully, but in some sense, we can be what Jesus himself was, part of God's future arriving in the present, a place where heaven and earth meet and the means of God's kingdom going forward. Friends, that's our charge. To be a place where heaven and earth come together. What a glorious thing. What an amazing opportunity we have. Pentecost is that great day where God birthed the church so that God's glory could be made known to the world. And you, brothers and sisters, you are the church. 
And you leave here and you're still the church and people are seeing God's glory in you. And so I pray that, that if you know this and you know the power of the Holy Spirit and Jesus Christ in your life, that you would know it more fully and you would recognize His grace more deeply and His Holy Spirit would work more powerfully on your life to share the gospel. And if you've not heard anything like this before, if you don't know that grace and mercy of Jesus Christ, I pray the Holy Spirit would work on your heart as well to begin to soften it, to take away the stone-cold bitterness that, that, that inhabits so many of our hearts and that he would, he would work his way into your heart and show you the love of Christ and that you are God's beloved child so much so that he would die for you that you might be raised to new life. Why don't we pray? Lord, thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit. Pray now that you would be with us in abundance. Continue to fashion us into your people that we may proclaim your glory. If there's anyone here, Lord, that does not know you, I pray that your Holy Spirit would, would, would rest in their heart this morning. Turn it to you, Lord, that they may too receive your grace and mercy. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.